The Solid 7 Podcast is fueled by Jocko Go. Engineered for anyone who wants to get after it in life, pre-meeting, pre-testing, pre-negotiation, or pre-mission. If you're looking for an extra cognitive or physical edge, Jocko Go is your force multiplier. With 95 milligrams of caffeine and zero sugar, the keto-friendly Jocko Go will give you a physical and cognitive boost without the crash that you experience with average energy drinks. Visit JockoFuel.com today, and you can use our promo code SOLID7, that's S-O-L-I-D-7, to get 10% off your order. Get on the path and get after it. Oh, and because lawyers exist, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and this product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, welcome back, world, to a Solid 7 podcast, a better-than-average podcast, if I do say so myself, and I do. Not a show about nothing, but we're also not a show about any one thing. Each week, we get together with a guest and talk about whatever is going on in the world that interests us. And this week is no difference as we uh, welcome Robbie Kroger to the podcast. Welcome, brother. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, man. And uh I much appreciate the the Amazon package that showed up in my oh, house yesterday. My my pleasure. One of the the great joys of doing the podcast is introducing people to to Jocko Go, or if they're already familiar with it. Yeah, I was also I was really familiar with it. I, I'm actually um, I've met Pete. I've been up in J Main. Nice. Uh, I was visiting with Ryan Mickler at the time, uh-huh. and he's like, "Why don't we go over to Origin and we'll meet we'll meet Pete. We'll have lunch with Pete and." Um, yeah, so that's how I got introduced to Origins, and I got a bunch of their jeans, and I wear a bunch of their jeans and boots, and um, I've ordered a bunch of their, their, their Jocko Go products. Um, I'm a big fan of their milk. Yes. I'm a big protein guy, and their greens. That's my staple. Greens I, and milk. So I, I've been a fan for a while. Am I cracking this now? Yeah, let's do it. Let's oh, sorry. cheers. I no. without you even giving me the permission. No, to crack it. perfect. You can't make you wait any longer. Now, did you get, is it the old orange or did you get the new and improved? Ooh, no, this is freaking good. Yeah. These new and improved flavors. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Uh, we'll we'll bleep it again. Like uh, I was I was I was, I was, I was, I was telling I was telling first you first faux pas. Right? I, I was first faux pas. I was telling you off air. Uh, I like to. Uh, I've got a great audio engineer, and I love to create a little extra work for him. So uh, there we'll bleep this out. <laughs> so African, no worries. Talk talk freely, and uh, we'll take care. But no, this job this is the improved flavor of the orange, and it is. There's three or four of the new flavors I haven't had yet, and the orange is the orange is one of them. So I'm going to rectify Ooh, that here good. soon. I'm telling you, I'm drinking a, a new and improved. The listeners already know this. They have to hear me do a, a mini Jocko Go commercial every episode. The way this started, I used to have a partner. The very first episode, we're both big Jocko fans. We're both fans of Origin. We're both fans of Jocko Fuel. And so we just naturally had Jocko Goes with us for our first episode. And uh, we cracked them on the mic, and uh, a tradition was born, and we've done it every episode since. Wow. So now, wow. now we're affiliates, and uh, we've got a promo code. So listeners, feel free to stop by jockofuel.com, and uh, you can use the code SOLID7, S-O-L-I-D-7, to get 10% off your own delicious Jocko Go and Jocko Fuel and Origin. I'm interested to see. I've got I've to reach out to them and see if the promo code is going to work on the new hunt line that's coming out because it looks amazing. I don't think it will. I don't think there's going to be any hunt line available. Like I think they've only gone with the pre-order. Yeah. Because they've got limited quantities and material, and I think it's going to be done. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how how long it takes them. 
to uh, to catch up on that. But we actually connected because of of Jocko Fuel because of uh, having Brian Littlefield on the podcast a few episodes ago. And uh, I put out some social media about that episode as as one does. And all of a sudden, I, I see these likes coming through on some of my social media posts from, <laughs> from <laughs> random from, drive from, random like who the hell are these yes guys? oh and that dude that's my favorite thing about all this really is just kind of the networking and one person kind of leads to another and it's it's been all awesome people that we've kind of met and connected with through the podcast but I, I see these likes coming through uh from uh an account and it just says blood origins and i'm like mm-hmm. oh cool well the wiccans are following now so that's that I, it's the wiccans yeah I, wow I, I, the, it's, that's the first <laughs> Well, I'm just listen out out of context. Blood origins, it's a, it's a little ambiguous, and uh, so I'm no, like, okay, it's not. I'm like, <laughs> it is not ambiguous. Well, of course, think about of it. course, let's it's think not. about it. No, it makes let's, perfect. Let's take a time out. Yes, and let's think about it for a second. Well, lay it on me. Blood. Let's jump in. Yeah, you have blood in your system, right? Let's hope. <laughs> I hope so. I have blood in my system, yeah. and we all come from a place. We all are a a product of our past. We all are a product of wherever we originated. And that's what drives you. That is what that is your DNA makeup. That is your characteristics. That is your your personality. That's what makes you who you are. That's essentially your blood origins. Yes. Where you come from. Why you tick the way that you tick. And hunting just happens to be one of those things that is ingrained in people's blood. It's a heritage thing. It's a, tra- a tradition thing. Even if you you know you want to peel the onion layer back a little a little more, you probably wouldn't be sitting in the seat that you are in if it wasn't because of successful hunters in your lineage. Oh, absolutely not. And so, and that's, uh, you know, you, uh, you gave away the punchline there some, but I start to look in, I'm like, what in the heck is blood origins? And I find your account and instantly, instantly resonated with your message, with your content, with your mission. I'm like, oh, I'm like, this, this has to be on the podcast. We got to make this happen and, uh, reached out and you were game right away. Yeah. And you know why? It's because I'm constantly humbled. I'm constantly humbled that people want to have a conversation about the thing that we're so passionate about. And so I'm never going to say no. It doesn't matter if you have an audience of two or if you have an audience of two million. It doesn't matter. I'm going to say yes. Yeah. And well, and it's, it's a message I haven't heard. I won't say that it's it's that I haven't heard anywhere else. You can get it in little pieces, but I haven't seen anybody package it or present it in the way that you are with the quality that you are with the take that you are. Uh, and it was something that just absolutely, uh, had to, to share with my listeners, but let's, let's rewind the clock a little bit now. Sure. Um, you know, I, I got, I got your address, uh, to, so I could ship you the, the ubiquitous uh, Jocko go. And, uh, so you're, you're in the South. I, I'm kind of in the South. I'm in Florida. Florida's East, not South is, is always the mm-hmm. joke. And so I'm sure listeners have already noticed you do have, I mean, it is technically, a, a, southern, southern a southern accent, but uh, it's uh, not the southern accent we're we're used to hearing. So, uh, what's uh, what's your background, man? What's your story? Yeah, so I arrived. Um, I am South African, um, and uh, literally, you sent the package to Tennessee. I, I literally just moved to Tennessee in the last two months. Oh, really? Um, for the last 
I arrived in, in this country in 2003. So last 18 years I've spent in Mississippi. And uh, Mississippi's been home, and I, and I actually had strong opinions about probably never, ever leaving Mississippi. Love Mississippi. Uh, I arrived in 2003 to do a PhD in, in America. So I have a PhD in wetland ecology and aquatic biogeochemistry. And um, I, essentially a swamp guy. I love swamps. Yeah. That's my thing. I've loved swamps since I was 16 years old, and I, I knew that's what I wanted to study and, and build my career around. And um, arrived in this country into in Mississippi, did a great um, – had a great PhD program at Ole Miss and then uh, got hired as, as a professor in the wildlife fisheries department at Mississippi State University where I taught the next generation of resource managers in the wildlife industry as well as the forestry industry. Um, then the BP oil spill happened, if everybody remembers that, in 2010. And a new federal council got built out of the like born out of the BP oil spill to manage the money that came from the fines levied against mm-hmm. Transocean and, and BP. And I was loaned into that council as it got stood up as their chief scientist. So I stood up the restoration framework from Texas to Florida, oh, wow. um, which was an incredible, incredible uh, endeavor and opportunity. Uh, and then I got hired as a consultant, which is my day job uh, today, uh, with um, a consulting company in Mississippi in which, you know, day in and day out, I pretty much build restoration strategies for the state uh, and help the state uh, put signs behind uh, the restoration work that they're doing associated with the BP Oilspill. And so essentially that is my, my story in a nutshell uh, in terms of how I landed, what I, where I landed. And four years ago, because it'll be October 31st this year, will be five years uh, in terms of Blood Origins being alive, essentially. I started this thing called Blood Origins, which was this idea that 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 came out of me being a very new hunter. I only started hunting when I arrived in this country in 2003, 2000, no, probably 2005 is when I started hunting. I was 26, 27 years old. And um, when I had boys and I was getting a little bit more serious into hunting, I've, I've got two savages. They're 10 and 9 now. They're 5 and 4 then. Nice. And I was like, how am I going to explain to these kids why we are going hunting? Like really that thought process of like when they ask me, like, why are we going deer hunting? What am I going to say? Because we like to kill things. Right. Which is the perception of hunters for the majority. Or is there something deeper? Is there something beyond that? And so I really wanted to explore that. And so I wanted to do the way for me to explore that was for me to capture people's stories of why they hunted. And that's how I started. Yeah. Well, what was like, what, you know, what preceded that though? You know, if you, I feel like a lot of the people in my life that I, that I know um, that are, that are hunters on, on any semi-serious or regular basis, almost without fail, grew up with it, grew up hunting. Um, so a hunter like you who starts later in life or starts as an adult, I feel like, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, cause you'll certainly know better than me. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of the exception to the rule. So what was the impetus for, for you that late in life to pick up hunting? Well, as I, as I, as we started this podcast talking about blood origins, 
hunting is is a is a part of my family's history. I just never got to do it. I never got to experience it. So my grandfather immigrated to Mozambique in the 50s from Germany. Um, and he lived the heyday of African hunting. He was a huge hunter from early, early, early in his childhood. So was my father. And I just grew up in a city, Johannesburg, South Africa, eight and a half million people that just, you'd, it's like growing up in New York or Los Angeles. You just didn't have the opportunity to hunt. Your friends didn't hunt. Your community didn't hunt. So why did you, nobody's talking about hunting? It's not, it's not something that's on your radar. Right. So you just didn't do it. And so when I arrived in this country, uh, again, for the first two years, it wasn't on my radar either. So I didn't, it wasn't something that I was like interested in. But as all things, uh, as most things, um, the way that they come about is you form a new community circle, which I had to do when I arrived in this country. And that circle comprised a six foot seven, 250 pound redneck. It's fantastic. Uh, phenomenal kid, uh, a kid then. He's now a father of four. Um, a phenomenal individual. And um, he said, Do you want to go hunting? I was like, yeah, I guess I, you know, I'd love to do it. And so we started. Uh, he says you have to go get your hunter's education. So I did all the prerequisites, and um, that was that. And I started and loved it, and steadily moved through the stages of being a hunter very quickly because I was 26 years old. I wasn't 12, and uh, you know, as I matured and as I gained more resources because of the jobs that I was having and started exploring hunting more and more and got to that point again where I needed to explain what this thing was that was hunting to my boys. And I didn't feel like our community was being represented in the right way on social media um, that really articulated the, the why, really the why behind why someone went into the field to pursue animals to kill them. Right. So it was, uh, before I let you get too deep, because there's so much philosophy and, and theory in this that was really, you know, even as somebody who's who's open to hunting, I would I would by no means call myself a hunter. I, I did tell you, I, I threw on, you know, listeners won't see me, but I've got my my Under Armour, uh, you know, real treat hat on to, to pander as as one does. But I have, I have, well, hun- I have that, hun- your statement right there proves is it real tree camo? I don't think it is. I think. Let me see if. Uh, hang on. I'll take it off. Let me see if because I can find the logo on here. It shouldn't be because there's no way Under Armour would license with real tree. It's. It's here. Let me see if I can get it to my camera. The the real tree logo. It is. Yeah. Okay. See. I I, I stand corrected. I stand corrected because Under Armour has their own obviously their own camo yeah. right. Um. But they probably just. I can't again. remember when when I I picked this up. It was probably my my one and only. If we're not counting fishing, and I, I don't know where you fall on that. Some people do, some people don't. I mean, there's animals involved. You can eat when you're done, maybe. Um, <laughs> I, I've always been more of a fisher than a catcher, but uh, I had some buddies down here that we. I mean, we just went and did. You can go hunt hogs just about anywhere if you're willing to. Hundred um, percent. They're they're feral. They're awful. They're a burden, and they breed faster than anyone anywhere, including Tim Kennedy, can kill them. And that's saying that's they say, will. But they taste yeah. ridiculously good if you know what you're doing. If you know what you're doing, there's there's a learning curve there. But I'm like, well, if I'm if I'm gonna go hunt hogs, 
uh, which, uh, you know, for, for those who say uh, you can't hunt with an AR-15, sure can. <laughs> sure, sure. I don't know that it's ideal, but sure can. But uh, I think that's when I snagged this hat. So I like it more now that I know it's a, it's a bit of a, a unicorn. But uh, so, you know, I, I'm by no means a hunter myself, but but not not opposed. And, you know, I'm probably somebody that's more uh, amenable to the the lifestyle and, and, the, and the philosophy um, of hunting. So I'm, I'm kind of a, an, an easy sell myself, but, um, you know, but you're not, you're not, that's the thing. You don't think? What? No. Okay. So you're the majority middle. You're the majority middle that really has no opinion either way, but you're going to get swayed. And I hope that the way that you're interacting with me now, and maybe you can flatter me and say, yes, or you can be truthful and say yes or no, you, you tell me. Um, but the whole point of Blood Origins content is for someone like you to look at it and go, wow, this is a totally different side of hunting that I never, I never thought about. And because of that, you've just communicated to me, I'm okay with it. Yeah, I'm not a hunter, but I'm okay with it. However, if you had come across an account that had a bunch of you know, rednecks drinking beer out of a dead deer carcass or you know, baseball batting a crane that they're hunting. You're not a hunter, but you're probably not going to have a good impression of hunting. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's, let's dig in, dig into all of it, but I do want to, I want to answer some of my maybe shallower curiosities here as, as we go and, and kind of fill in the gaps. Cause all, all of this stuff interests me. Uh, and, and I'll, we'll get into some of why I, I say I'm not really a hunter because there, there's a leap that I, I would like to make there. Uh, but I feel like there's a bit of a barrier to entry, but that's, that's down the road here. What, what was, what was the first hunt for you? Doves, uh, with my dad and my grandfather in South Africa. So typically, uh, a dove hunt is going to be shotguns and birds flying. Now for someone who's never hunted, and I'll probably do the same for my boys when they get ready to dove hunt, is that if you find a dove that's sort of lit on a, on a wire or on a fence, who's sitting, you sort of shoot that bird you know, to get a sense of that's your first kill. Right. Because shooting a flying dove is as your first kill is very, very challenging. And I remember my dad being next to me because I'd never shot a shotgun before, giving me instruction, hey, shoot that dove, it's on the sunflower. Okay, great. Okay, here's another one on the fence, shoot that one. Okay, that one's on a corn stalk, shoot that one. And I think he gave me three. And then once those three were done, he was like, all right, no more sitting, no more sitting doves, you shoot the ones that are flying now. And so that was my first, you know, first taste of hunting. But again, being where we were, we were in South Africa at the time, that was it. There was no, no follow-on. There was no what's next. Yeah. So then what was your, your first, uh, uh, we'll say, a redneck hunt here in America? White-tailed deer, baby. We, we have those in Florida. They're dog-sized, but I'm told that we, that we have. I've heard tell of there being deer here in Florida. But, There's white-tailed deer everywhere, all the, and they stretch all the way down uh, Central America and even into South America and to Peru. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've heard just you know from enough podcasting in the circles and the Peter Atias and the Joe Rogans of kind of the, the, you know, the, the different uh, species isn't the right word, but uh, what are the really quick ones that are over in Hawaii that you can go and hunt? 
access to. Yeah, so all, all those all those different takes. So it is cool that the that there's so many different versions floating floating around there, not just the fluffy uh, white tails. So was that uh, was that a rifle hunt? Oh yeah. And is that still like what's your preferred medium of hunting even now, or are you kind of a, a jack of all trades rifle. rifle? Yeah, I'm a rifle hunter. I'll use um, most things. I'll use a bow. I'll use a muzzleloader. Um, because all that does is it extends my opportunities to hunt. Right. Um, certain rifle seasons are very, very short in Mississippi. Uh, you get two weeks of modern gun, I think, a year. Uh, you get probably three months of bow hunting. You get about a month of, I may be messing up the, the modern rifle, but you get about a month of muzzle loading and maybe a month of modern gun. Gotcha. Now it's um I, I there's all kinds of hunting questions that that I that I'd love to get in but what I really want want to be able to share and what I want to expose my listeners to is the blood origin story. So, you know, you come over in 2003, you you pick up hunting a couple of years later. Um so there there's a gap there between kind of your your entrance into hunting at least in the states here and blood origin. So what was what was the catalyst in, during that time? Um, that kind of caused that start of, of blood origins. You kind of mentioned, you, you know, you didn't like what you were seeing in the way hunting was being portrayed. Um, was that from, you know, just maybe some of the, if I can use it, bro hunting culture or um, actual media, the way media would cover hunting or all of the above? Like what, what were you seeing no, that was kind of the catalyst there? Yeah, I think it's, uh, actually, I don't think it's any of that. Um, I'm a creative person by nature. And I think I was at a time in my life that a couple of things sort of dovetailed together. Number one was my boys were getting old enough to go out with me into the woods. And I wanted to make sure that I was prepared for them and their questions at five and four, which are obviously very innocent but very pervasive in terms of <laughs> what they what they say. Right. Um, Secondly, I, I think creatively, I was, I was searching for this idea of why I hunted myself and I couldn't find it. And so I was like, well, why can't I build it? Why can't I build what this thing wants to look like? And how would I do it that doesn't look like anything that I've seen on any of the outdoor shows, Sportsman's Channel? You know, because I was a religious watcher at that time. That was the thing that I would do as I would watch hunting shows, you know. And so it was really that inspired. And then my grandfather was a prolific writer. He was a prolific storyteller. And hunters are prolific storytellers. Well, we should be. Traditionally, we were like phenomenal storytellers. Mm -hmm. And I felt like the storytelling game of hunters had waned in what I was seeing and in what I was consuming. So I was like, how can I blend incredible storytelling with an incredible creative way of capturing someone's heart with this idea that I'm going to be learning so I can communicate this to my boys. And that's where Blood Origins really sort of started. Your, you know, your, your background is, you know, at this, this mix of, you know, just by the nature of, of your field, you know, it's, it's both intellectual and, and field work. Um, with, you know, with the PhD, with the ecological work, where does, where does the production component come, come in? Like it, it, listeners, you know, by the time you're done with the, with, with this episode, you're going to want to go and check out the blood origins podcast, but you're also going to want to hit up YouTube and check out this incredible 
video content that you're producing. I mean, it's it would not be out of place on Discovery Channel, on National Geographic. Right. So you're producing from a from a production standpoint this very high quality content. So where does that come into your background? Well, I, it, you know, from a science perspective, you've always got to think like next steps. You've got to have a vision for where you want to go. And I guess, again, that's the creative side of who I am. I, I have a, a very, I'm a driven individual that has vision. And that's what just, I, I knew what I wanted to see in Blood Origins. I didn't know what kind of camera I needed. I didn't know ISOs, F-stops, apertures. I knew nothing of right. that. I'm not a cameraman. I'm not a cinematographer. I just have a, an idea of what I want it to look like. And um, I had a great example of what I wanted it to look like. There's a, a Christian testimonial project called I Am Second. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard of it. Oh, have yeah. you heard of it? Yeah, absolutely. And so when I was teaching Sunday school with my wife, we were – using I am second videos to sort of portray lessons. And the one that resonated with me was Josh, um, Josh Hamilton. It was a, it was a picture with the Texas Rangers and uh, lost both of his parents in a car accident when he's 17 years old, turned to drugs and alcohol. And um, he was living with his grandmother at the time. Anyway, it's just, a, it's just the story. Like I can still recall the story. And I watched that video five years ago. Right six years ago now, seven years ago, and I can still remember what he said and, and the position he was in because the way that they shoot it is not it, – it's an interview, but you don't know it's an interview. Right. The person's just talking down the barrel of the camera and there's all these different angles and shots and it just makes you feel. And I think that's a great way to, to sort of – what I wanted Blood Origins content to do is to make you feel and make you feel a little uncomfortable. Um, and I didn't know that there was no hunting content in the space, and not that you're, you know, you wouldn't know, but th there is nothing that parallels with what we're trying to do. There's, there's, there's some content now, and imitation is the greatest form of flattery, which is great, yeah. and that's what we want. But yeah, that creative vision, and then I just hired the best guy I could find with the limited funds I had, and I said, I have this is what I want it to look like, and let's do it. Yeah. And that was that. It's um. It's funny. I was thinking, watching through. I it's before a, an episode like this. I actually so I I I found your content. I've, I've you know I found your accounts and everything. And then as soon as I figured out what you were about, and as soon as I reached out and asked you to come on the podcast, and you said yes, I stopped right because I want to come into this fresh. I want to ask the kind of questions one of my listeners, if they met you at a kid's birthday party, I mean whatever. What what a conversation might be. So I stopped consuming, but that, so I have this general vibe though, and I you know I've seen the beauties on the content, and I watch some of the the smaller stuff, and then I notice you just drop some really uh, cool content uh, with uh, Cabela, which is awesome. Um, but uh, it, it, some of the footage it remind me, and, and and there's an age difference that you can't compare. But I grew up with my dad. And I wasn't going to share this reference because I didn't know uh, your professional background. But now and I'm certain you'll know this name now. But I I grew up with my dad watching Marty Stauffer's content, if I'm saying his name right. Wild America, I think, was his show. Well, it, you got to remember, I didn't grow up in America. Oh, so. yeah. Okay. So uh, it's uh, – <laughs> I don't even know who to, who to compare him to. Like it wasn't, it wasn't hunting content, but I mean it was just – 
It was, so it was like a David it, Attenborough yes, type content. Yeah, it was just good, nature content. Yeah, just good nature content. And they'd put in the work, you know, the, the the guys that do that best, the guys and gals that do that best. I mean, they're they're like military snipers. I mean, they're stalking and they're laying still. And I mean, you really gotta and it was just awesome content. And you could his passion for it came through and you you know, his voiceovers were were fantastic. And so I uh, grew up loving that content. So as I'm watching some of your stuff, I'm like, okay, yeah, I really, I really kind of dig this. But then, you know, I've gotten at the times where I'm like, man, I, I would really like to, uh, uh, you know, I, there's, there's been this desire for several, several years now for, for a long period of time. I couldn't pick how long to get into hunting. I do feel like there's a, a bit of a barrier to entry, but as you start to try to consume content to try to figure that out, the range of things you get is pretty wild from, I mean, I don't know if you put Ted Nugent all the way on one spectrum, but he's definitely somewhere out there. And, you know, from, from Ted Nugent to, to, to Renella and meat eaters, which mm-hmm. is, which is very thoughtful. And I think, mm-hmm. um, is more in your vein of, of a, of a, a healthy and, and thoughtful and almost philosophic present, presentation of hunting. I think he does a great job, but you know that, and then but, you know, every YouTube channel in between will, will paint a different picture for you. And by the time you're done, you're like, I, I don't know. I don't know where to go with this. I don't know if I'm supposed to be in a, in a tree stand in, in Michigan playing rock and roll or what I'm supposed to do here. Um, so, but as you approach this, like what, you know, you're talking about, you're kind of finding your, your why or def- defining your why for hunting as your boys get older. And that kind of coincides with, with the launch of Blood Origins. So is... If I ask you to define the mission of, of Blood Origins, why it exists, is that the same answer as the why for hunting, or are those two different, Absolutely. two different answers? So what? So what? What is that? What did What did you land on? What's that purpose? To convey the truth about hunting. Well, let's let's hear it. What is the truth? It, it depends. The the truth depends on someone's heart. So if you you go back to the why of someone why someone hunts, that truth is buried in their expression of why they hunt, okay? Unfortunately, that truth is never exposed because all that we are seeing on outdoor television is we just like to kill things. Right. Kill, 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 kill. And that's not the truth. That's not conveying the truth about hunting. Gotcha. Then the, you know, the truth about what hunting does for people, what it does for communities, what it does for economics. You know, a lot of people don't understand that in this country, let's just use the pandemic as an example. You have 25 new million, 25 million new gun owners in the United States of America. They don't realize that because of their purchases of their new guns, of ammunition, there's this little federal uh, act called Pittman-Robinson. Pittman-Robinson is an 11% excise tax on all ammunition, all guns, all handguns, all bow equipment, all hunting apparel, optics, that gets funneled back to the states to do conservation work. So the next time one of your listeners is walking down to one of their favorite wildlife management areas, and they're going hiking or camping or going to cook s'mores, or bird watching. You cannot be anti-hunting. You cannot be anti-shooting if you enjoy that because that was paid for 
by hunters and shooters. $1.3 billion came into conservation around the United States last year in 2021 because of hunters and the recreational shooting community in the United States. What, how does that break down percentage-wise as far as the total dollars spent on conservation? Do you know? That varies. Yeah. That is tremendously variable because of additional license sales in each of the states, law enforcement in each of the states, um, private foundations in each of the states. But it is substantial. For instance, like Maine. I'll give you an example. Maine and New Hampshire, small states, small hunting population, small population, small land mass, their funding of what they do every year is approximately 75 to 85% coming from Pittman-Robertson. Wow. So let's play a scenario out. Let's ban all the guns. Let's ban hunting. The forget the guns argument. Let's ban hunting. You've heard the calls to ban hunting. That means there's nobody going to be conserving wildlife in Maine and New Hampshire anymore. Who's going to do that work? There's no money. It's all gone. What about the moose population in New Hampshire and Maine? What about the endangered New England cottontail that we just released three into a population that's never going to get hunted, but hunters are funding it? That's the truth. That's conveying the truth about hunting. Is that is it? Um, is that conversation, uh, conservation side of it, pri- primarily what what drives you and what the focus for Blood Origin is, or is it the um, additional pieces of? Um, it's 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 additional. Yeah. It's it's everything. It's people. It's people's hearts. It's conservation. It's doing good conservation yeah. work. It's finding great projects and saying let's just let's raise money for this all around the world. I just had a conversation with a guy who you could almost call an anti-hunter in Australia who runs a non-profit, almost like an animal welfare non-profit for brush-tailed rock wallabies. And they have an issue with predators. And I said, what do you need? What can, how can I help you? You know, we need, you know, we're expending a lot of funds on predator control. control. And we'd love to do some radio coloring of our wallabies to figure out where they're going and how we can improve habitats. I said, I want to help you do that. I'll raise those money. I'll raise those funds for you. A hunting organization, helping an animal welfare organization happens all the time. Yeah. You just don't know it because the truth's never put out there. So I want to uh, I want to play devil's advocate on some of the points as we go along here. Hundred percent. Um, you know the let's the you know we're all grown ups. We understand the let's get rid of the guns. Let's let's ban the hunting. The, yep. Those ideas, not exclusively, but they tend to to fall along pretty pretty defined ideological or political lines. And I, I think do they do they really? You feel like they don't. I think the gun thing, absolutely, yeah. the gun thing is 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 definitely politicized. Yeah. But hunting, hunting doesn't have a color. Okay, I know a bunch of Democrats yeah. that hunt. I know a bunch of Republicans that hunt. I know a bunch of Libertarians that hunt. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I come down on that for, for, for sure. Like that I feel, um, but I feel like if you get into the, the side of, of like ban hunting or you shouldn't hunt or, you know, why, uh, and any of those types of arguments, those feel like very one-sided politically to me. Is that just me being com- compartmentalized? No, I think that that is part of the, I think that's part of the problem and part of the rhetoric yeah. in, in the hunting community space or maybe just in, in society space yeah. right now. Everything seems to be polarized um, in which hunting shouldn't be polarized in that it's it's tied to wildlife conservation. Right. Everyone benefits from wildlife conservation. And I think it's maybe it's an education awareness thing. Again, that's why we build the content we build is that, oh, I never understood or, oh, I didn't quite understand how that works. Right. Where I was, where I was leading with that is, I, I feel like maybe there, there would be a point to be made there. Um, and again, this is this is devil's argument because I've I've experienced otherwise, and you just expressed otherwise that oh, sure, that's that's great, but it's it's not that the hunters have an actual concern for conservation. It's just that the government's forcing things like those tax on them, and if if they weren't forced to do that, that they wouldn't support conservation. Uh, yeah, yes and no. So let me explain Pittman-Robertson a little bit more in that it's not a forced tax on the individual. It's a, it's a tax that is buried into the sort of, um, how can I, how would I say this best? It's part of the cost of business for the manufacturers. So someone who's building a rifle, a Weatherby or a Sig Sauer, it's just part of business. It's like a, it's like an assembly cost that is added, and everyone is on working off the same playing field. That eleven percent gets sent to uh, some sort of tax bureau in the United States government, then it gets funneled to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and then it gets distributed to the states. So the consumer, me as a hunter, you as a hunter, you wouldn't, you never, you're actually not experiencing the eleven percent, right? Because it's it's, just it's not in. a tax on you. Gotcha. Um. What was the second part? Well, really, what I'm what I'm looking to 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 maybe get you to speak to is just, um, you know, what 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 the level of of, of passion or dedication to to conserve to conservation is within the hunting community. And again, you know, I understand mm. we say hunting community, and you 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 paint broad strokes. A lot of people that, that maybe you and I, neither one would like to be lumped in with that do get lumped in with that in, in the common understanding, you know, somebody who's, who's out with high beam headlights at night and hunting out of season and in ways they shouldn't, you know, get, get lumped in with people, you know, doing things more properly and, and more ethically, but really just, just the base or the, or the passion for conservation that that's baked into the hunting community or is it baked into the hunting community? Yeah, so I think this is where a lot of your guests are going to be surprised. Blood Origins is interested in conveying the truth about hunting, and sometimes the hunt, and sometimes the truth hurts. I would say the vast majority of people that hunt do not hunt for conservation. They don't. They hunt for several different reasons. Whether you know, some of them like the idea of killing. Right? Some do it because they want to feed their families. Some people do it for adventure. Some people do it for conservation. The 11% Pittman-Robertson excise tax just happens to be an artifact of a, res- a benefit coming from hunting that is conservation. 
yes, we buy licenses that contribute to conservation. We buy tags. Um, we contribute to various nonprofit organizations that are species-specific nonprofit organizations, but so do non-hunters like Audubon or TNC or anything like that. So in the grand scheme of things, there's a phrase that happens in hunting that is, hunting is conservation. Well, very rarely is that statement actually true. And you're hearing that coming from a hunter. Yeah. Hunting as conservation is only true when you're interacting with an invasive species like a pig in an environment and you're removing that pig through the action of hunting. Then, yes, technically hunting is conservation. But hunting typically is indirectly conservation. Pittman-Robertson is an indirect consequence of a tax that benefits conservation that hunters pay into. Uh, all of the African models, you go to Africa to hunt, you don't go to Africa to conserve, but because of your actions, because of the money you're paying, you're protecting habitat, you're giving people jobs, you're funding anti-poaching, you're funding schools, you're putting medical into the ground in those communities. Those are the benefits that the conservation, indirect benefits of, of the action, not the direct action. So yeah, to your point, I would say the vast majority of hunters do not do it for conservation purposes. If they, if they were doing it, it would be more from a management perspective. Like there's too many deer on this property, we have to manage the deer. Right. We want to manage the population to sustain a healthy wildlife herd and to sustain a healthy habitat. So it's, it's part of the message then, not so much, it's, it's not that, that hunting is con conservation, but it's that it, the, the conservation and the funding is a direct side effect that were you to take, were you to wave a magic wand and remove hunting from the equation, there's no replacement for that conservation. There's no other way, obvious or immediate way to get that done. Yeah, and any attempts thus far to create what they call a backpack tax. So a very similar model of PR, which is put in Robertson, on the outdoor recreational user, mountain bikes, snow skis, tents, camping equipment, have dismally failed. It doesn't feel like it when I'm paying for things at REI. It feels like there's 11% of something built in to the prices at REI. Could you imagine? Could you imagine how much money could have could be generated for conservation? It'd be pretty impressive. Yeah, I, you know, I get torn on those things. It's the uh, my listeners will know. You know, I, I describe myself as a conservative libertarian, which ticks off conservatives and libertarians. Uh, which is which is part of the fun of it. So I'm like, the the libertarianism in me is like, no, let's just get those people out outdoors and show them the value of it, and uh, hope they logic their way to it. But uh, it's it's always uh, easier said than done. And uh, hey, would I would I rather my ammo be a little cheaper and my mountain bike that I buy, you know, once a decade be a little more expensive? Yes, I would make that trade. <laughs> <laughs> if I could. So well, you, you know, you mentioned kind of the, the, the tertiary, the secondary effects, um, of hunting. Um, you know, obviously uh, Pittman Robertson plays a role here in the States, but in some place, um, you know, like South Africa, 
How how does that that differ? I mean, you you mentioned a lot of tertiary and secondary impacts there. So how does that play out there in a, in a different type of system? Because a lot of what you see, to me, I, I don't see a lot of negative press. Certainly not in mainstream media. For I mean, you'll get it, but you don't see big stories blow up about a guy who you know went and took a buck in season. That's you know, not, some people are worked up about that, but it's not going to be on CNN. But by God, if a dentist goes and pays to kill a giraffe, somehow he's the worst person on the planet, and we all need to hear about it. So is he the worst person on the planet? Well, again, from from a lack of education and lack of awareness perspective, I'll start by saying, again, the mission of Blood Origins is to convey the truth about hunting. And using your hypothetical scenario, it would be conveying that Southern African giraffes, the subspecies of giraffe that occurs in South Africa, is burgeoning in their population, happens to be burgeoning in two provinces in South Africa where 90% of the population occurs, of which the majority, if not all, occur on hunting private areas that are managing their wildlife very well and in a sustainable manner such that the population is increasing. Now, if you look at the other four subspecies of giraffe that probably CNN uh, convoluted into this, into this hypothetical news piece, yes, they're doing terribly. But then again, where are they located? Oh, coincidentally, they're located in places that don't allow hunting. And i.e., there's a value tied to animals. And I think that's a very important point that's pervasive across the world, which is, if an animal or wildlife or land use, let's just use land use, has value, it's going to dominate the landscape. I.e., if hunting is a very well, is a lucrative model to generate funds, the wildlife that is dependent on hunting is a value add to the landscape, it's going to stay. If it's not a value add anywhere in the world, elk, deer, buffalo, lion, it's not going to be present any longer because something's going to replace it. That makes more money. More makes equal money. Let me say that. So that's the first thing, is that it's an education awareness of what is happening in South Africa. The model is is certainly very different, but the model in South Africa for wildlife conservation tied to hunting is, is probably equal and on par to the North American wildlife conservation model that has brought back all of the species from close to extinction in the 1900s and 1910s. South Africa had 500,000 head of wildlife in 1970. The, the landscape was dominated by cattle agriculture. All the wilderness had been converted to agriculture because cows paid more money than wildlife. They went through a significant drought period. People started recognizing that, oh, wildlife tend to do better on these lands when, they're t- when it's tough times. And, oh, maybe they, we can sell wildlife as a game ranching business. You were talking about a friend of yours that had a property or your wife that went yeah. uh, on missions. That property was, gonna do, is, was probably doing three things. It didn't sound like they were hunting animals, but it sounded like they were in the game ranching business, i.e., we're going to grow animals, we're going to keep our habitat good, and when it reaches a carrying capacity that, hey, we've got 10 more impalas than we need, we're going to sell them. Yeah. People are going to come in and we're going to, they're going to take them. Or ecotourism. 
people come in, they want to see all these animals that drive around in the Land Rover, and they pay money for that. And so the model in South Africa is a great, is a great testament to what is possible when people truly, truly, truly wild, uh, value wildlife. Um, so, yeah, the model is different. The model is not a Pittman-Robertson model. The, the Pittman-Robertson model in, the, in, in America is a very unique model. There is no other model like it in the world. So, you know, then when, when, you, when you see these reports out, out of context, um, you know, when you, when you see people, uh, you know, in, in watching some of your, your short-form videos, uh, I, I, you know, watched through one where you, where you called Joe Rogan out a little bit. <laughs> I'd love for him. I would, dude. You're so right up his alley. Like it's, it's got it. I wish, I wish he saw it. I know that he saw the video, so I, that mean, was a win for me. You're so right up his alley. I mean, you just got to end up on his show. But, uh, but uh, you know, here you are on the Salt Zone podcast. It's a close second. So. <laughs> yeah, it's a close second. I love it. So, um, uh, but but in that part of what you were calling out, and, and listeners can go and find this this video really easily on YouTube, but is like uh, Joe is he's I think it's fair to say an, an avid hunter I think it's fair to say an, an ethical uh hunter um you know I, I think it's fair to say pro hunter but what you were calling him, him out on is kind of this mistaken hey uh take or understanding of uh you know what gets referred to and and not in, in a kind way is is trophy hunting which I think is the way that a lot of um, you know, this pay to play, uh, hunting in places like South Africa gets portrayed by, by media here. And there, there is, you know, if we're talking truth in hunting, uh, that happens, there, there, that happens all yeah. over the show. Well, and there is some truth into if you've, if you've got enough money in the desire, you, you can pay and you can go over and you can hunt one of these, what to an American is an exotic animal. And you might only be taking home uh, a head or a pelt. Um, so in that, that, that portion of that portrayal is, is right. But what's the missing context there that makes that not awful or not wasteful or, or not evil? I think the, again, I think we need to speak truth and that you're right. You're absolutely right. That happens. People go to trophy hunt and, and people typically go to Africa to trophy hunt because they want the biggest animal. They want to find the biggest animal. They're not going for conservation. And so the, the, the thing that I called Joe out on was this idea of what, what is the system, right? It's that these, you've got fat Americans going over and, and killing and killing an elephant, right? And that's the most abhorrent activity you possibly could undertake. Well, did you, do you know how much money got poured back into the community because of that one hunt? Do you know how many livelihoods and jobs were dependent on that one hunt? Do you know how much protein got pushed back into the community because of that one hunt? It's unbelievable. It's almost like three weeks of meat for an entire village if you're talking about an elephant hunt. And people are like, well, you know, like, well, they, they need to, you know, kill their own cattle and goats. Like, well, one, they don't have them because they live in a place that has tsetse fly that cattle and goats will not survive in. Okay, so they have no alternative. And two, meat's expensive. Are you sending them checks? 
to go buy the meat in the grocery store when there's an elephant walking by that's, by the way, just destroyed a year's worth of their crop. I don't know about you, but I'd be pissed off. Yeah. And so it's it, 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 there's a, a number of confluences in Africa, and I think a Western ideology just is very difficult to... A Western ideology of how people live here is, is a, it's 180 degrees from what these guys are experiencing in, in very rural places in Africa. Well, and I, my take, uh, you know, or my understanding is a, a lot of the perception as I see it is again, when you're, when you're in America, when you haven't left these shores, when you haven't traveled some particularly, you know, a lot of these are animals you can only see if you're going to go and, and visit Africa. They all feel exotic to us. And I think without even asking or polling, I think the common understanding, if you see a zebra, a giraffe, an, an elephant, um, you know, all of the all of the animals that Disney has anthropomorphized. <laughs> you know, when you when you see a hunter, bows propped up, rifles propped up, holding up the head, uh, you know, maybe a little streak of blood down the side, and you're going, Oh, it's they killed they killed Pumbaa. Um and, uh, you know, I, I think the assumption is these are, it's in the word e exotic. These are endangered animals. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's so interesting having someone with your, with your background that can, that can speak to both sides of this from the, the intellectual and the scientific standpoint and really have an understanding of the ecology and the, the, the biological systems that are at play here, the ecological systems that are in play, um, and, when we're talking so much of our news, so much even of our social media, it's just sound bites. I mean, it keeps getting shorter and shorter. I thought we were making progress when Vine died, but you know, now it's now it's TikTok and there's not time for the nuance of no, this this element that you're seeing here uh was old, was destructive, needed to be cold, provided all of these tertiary benefits in in employment in employment, in meat, in uh raw materials for goods that are gonna be sold to the tourists that are that are on safari, is not the same species as this endangered one here that people are killing and just taking the tusks. And I just feel like so much of, of our media, of our social media, isn't you don't have time to get into that nuance. Um, to give the context that's needed to really judge the good or the bad of of an individual hunt when these things kind of make news and get presented, but even more broadly of of the operations that um, that care for this land and, and take care of it and, and manage the the animals and the hunts. But Kale, why do you think the that that go back to the hypothetical CNN article? Why do you think that that's the article? Uh, because I think it gets significantly more clicks than uh, dentist pays for hunt that funds village clinic for six months. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Uh, well, there's a story I'm not clicking I on. Agree. I would agree. But I will argue that as a hunting community, we haven't told the latter story. Right. I think that 99% of the time we focused on the dentist that killed the lion. And here's the trophy shot of the lion. Because it's sexy. It's sexy for hunters to look at. Dentist walking into the medical clinic that he funded that's helping deliver, you know, birth control and antiretrovirals for HIV and um, 
you know, maternity wards. It's not very sexy content. But it's important content for you to understand the consequence of the action. That's what we focus on. And so we've got to figure out how to make it sexy. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I think it's got to be both pieces because if if you just go uh, with the – with the humanitarian side, with you just go if you just go with the employment that's provided, and that looks very different, um, you know, in in Western hunting culture, it looks very different here, where you know that job isn't uh, you know a hunting guide, it's you know a guy working a counter at a Bass Pro shop at a Cabela's, um, right? So it, it's it's the same thing, and you know it's different sides of the same coin, but if you just tell that humanitarian side, oh, it funded a school, oh, it paid for you know X Y Z. Um, there's still the, oh, well, why, why not just donate that money? Why not just do that? So I, I think part of what's, what's important, um, and this, you know, like I said, I, because I wanted the, the conversation to be fresh, I, you know, I, I didn't see a lot of this in, this in the, the, the short form videos of yours that I did produce. So I'd be interested to hear how you approach this is telling the story of, no, here is also the, why calling that animal makes sense. Here's what happens mm. if those hunters aren't there doing that. Rather, that's uh, that setting uh, in South Africa, rather that's, um, you know, our, our herds and wildlife wildlife here. What, what if, again, if you re- forget the funding side, if you remove the hunters from the equation, ecologically, what's, what's that impact? Because I, I think um, everybody thinks we just go back to Garden of Eden and, you know, all the animals are playing nice and getting along and no animal ever dies vi- violently in, uh, <laughs> in, in nature. If you remove human, right. if you, That's if you remove humanity, there's no, there's no violent death. No, they all die. Of, if we weren't hunt, if it wasn't for humans, they would all die of old age. That's right. <laughs> Kale, you are immensely, um, insightful in, in your, in your foresight of what you're saying. It's all, it's the Jocko go, man. I take no credit. Well, the reason I'm saying that is in two and a half weeks, I'll be landing in Spain. And the reason I'm landing in Spain is that there has been a ban put in place on hunting in the national park system in Spain, in a place called Cabaneros National Park. And unlike Africa, in which when areas get bans put in place, hunting pulls out, the value disappears, and people move in, take the value off the landscape. So wildlife is decimated. The opposite is happening in Cabaneros. So right now, they estimate that they have 7,000 too many stags on the landscape, red deer on the landscape. And the government is now pointing the finger at the hunting outfit saying, you need to take care of the problem. <laughs> the habitat's being degraded. Trees getting smashed. You know, we, that's what we want to capture. We want to capture it all. And they haven't got the, the go-ahead to cull yet. But when the cull gets given the green light, I want to film it. And I think for the first 10 kills the hunting community be like, oh, that's pretty cool. The next 50, everyone's going to be like, I don't want to watch any more of this. Yeah. Because it's going to be visceral and it's going to be reality and it's going to be like, this is what happens 
there is there are consequences to actions. Those the, that's the thing I'm teaching my kids, ten year old and a nine year old, that there is you do something, something happens. There is a consequence to what you do. And this is the perfect example. And and that's that's to your point, right? It's the ecological, it's the impact on the vegetation, the impact on the habitat, the impact on the wildlife, the unhealthiness of those deer right now. But then there's all the other things, right? The petrol's attendant that there's no hunters coming into the rural community of Spain anymore. So they don't have any revenue. The hoteliers don't have any revenue. The butchers aren't selling any product. Yada, yada, yada. On and on and on, yeah. Mm -hmm. So what... um... What 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 changed? Like where where was the pivot in? Um, you know, I think kind of you know in in America as as an America or in the states. Um, well, I'd like to think there's kind of a you know a common head knowledge of this. I I, I get depressed if I <laughs> of all the things that aren't common head knowledge now. But when when you look at, I, I think something like the the American bison. Are bison and buffalo the same thing? I yes, I so want a professional exactly doctoral same opinion. Same, same thing. thing. Good to know. You hear you heard it here first on the Solid Seven podcast. You're, <laughs> you're not learning that in school, uh, but you know that that's just you know the manifest destiny. The taming of the West is is so kind of baked into our identity in, in America, or for a lot of us. And part of that story uh, is is the bison and. If, if you know that there were massive herds of bison, you also probably know that we just darn near hunted them to extinction, but partially because there was that, that economic value. Uh, in, in And there were no legal constraints around the activity. Well, and that's that's kind of where my curiosity is, is when did we, we see that pivot? When, when is it that society realized... Oh yes, there's a ton of value here, but if we don't manage it well, it disappears. When did we start to to make that Great turn question. in any effective manner? Great question. In America, it was the turn of the century. 1900s, 1910s, small pockets of bison, white-tailed deer were probably in the 300,000 population across the United States, pronghorn, very low population, elk, very low population. Turkeys, very low populations, and it was all because of the consumer-driven market, mainly in urban centers, demanding the resource. That was the value on those animals, okay? Uh, you also got to recognize that at the, at the same time, and because this is, again, part of the truth. You don't want to lay it all on like, yay, sportsmen, yay, hunters. But there was a shift, you know, agricultural revolution was coming on board. And so you had better production of ag, you had better um, meat production through cattle, goats, sheep, that kind of stuff. But wildlife was at a, at a, at a precipice. And so something had, to, had, something had to change. So number one, uh, you had politicians and sportsmen come together to say, okay, we need to stop hunting these animals. And so essentially laws got put on the books that essentially outlawed hunting of species in their entirety, like no more. You also had the formation, uh, Theodore Roosevelt at the time formed a club called the Boone and Crockett Club. And what Boone and Crockett did, which was incredibly valuable, is they changed the value of the animal itself. 
they changed the value from it being this resource-driven uh, entity, i.e. for meat, say, or for the pelt, to a, a driven value that was tied to the maturity of the male of the species. And they said to hunters, that's what you should value. You should value the biggest horns or the biggest antlers. Because what's that, what that's going to indicate is two things. One, it's going to indicate your prowess as a hunter to be able to outsmart that animal. It's going to uh, indicate also the health of the ecosystem to allow an animal of that size to get to that size and that age class. And, and lastly, the third thing I didn't mention, I said two things, three things. Lastly, it took the pressure off of the engine that was needed to rebuild wildlife populations, which was the females. It's, That's how it changed. Yeah. That's how it changed. And then Pittman Robertson dropped in at nine, in the 1930s, 1934. Gotcha, yeah. Similarly, fisheries. You're a big fisherman. Fisheries did the yeah. same thing. Fisheries were in prayer roll as well. And an, and an act similar to Pittman Robertson, again, you may not know this, is Dingle Johnson. Dingle Johnson is an excise tax on all fishing tackle in the United States that gets funneled back to the States for sports fisheries restoration. I feel like Ding, Dingle Johnson should be a NASCAR driver. <laughs> Like, That's gosh it. dang, man, who, who named it? Like, I feel sorry for the kid who became a, a United mm. States representative that was called, his last name was Dingle. Yeah. And then he got together with a guy called Johnson and created yeah. a act called Dingle. Well, listen, I, I grew up, despite, uh, you know, being a, a child of the of the North, I was born in Illinois, and my, my parents were, were from Illinois. My dad was a, a big stock car racing fan. Both my parents were. So I'm named after an old NASCAR driver, Cale, Cale Yarbrough. Most people now haven't heard of him. But I've been around stock car racing long enough to know that there was also, normally this is the kind of content that I would bleep on the Solid 7 podcast, but it's the dude's name. There was uh, a well-known and successful NASCAR driver named Dick Trickle. You want to talk about unfortunate names? Days of Thunder, Cole Trickle, baby. Cole, yeah, Cole, Cole Trickle. I don't know if they, uh, you know, if they were alluding to a to a relation there. Now, Cole was a West Coast driver. I, I can quote that movie word for word. I grew up on it, and I love it. But uh, no, it's it's funny to hearing you talk about that. A, I'm always again conservative libertarian. I'm always so conflicted by Teddy Roosevelt, uh, unbelievably un, unmatched as. A man, an outdoorsman, a soldier, incredible. And as a politician, he drives me nuts, right? He, he, had, he had this statement that is 100% backwards about his presidency of, uh, that was, uh, if I'm paraphrasing, it's only slightly. It was something along the lines of, I can do anything except those things the Constitution expressly prohibits me doing. Which is exactly backwards. The whole point is that you can only do the things it says you can do. But Teddy says, no, I can do anything it doesn't specifically tell me I can't do. Which is how he ends up with, you know, I think a thousand some odd. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. But he also created the National Park System. I don't know. I'm always very conflicted on Teddy. But then uh, also very coincidental, and I, I bring it up because I know you have some ties to him. I've, this is not manufactured. Had no idea you were going to talk about that pivot in hunting to valuing the the big horns and the prowess, but was just uh, rereading Jack Carr's third book today, Savage Son, and I was just reading the paragraph 
uh, where they're they're on a stock of an old of an old animal that's super wise and it's always got great lines of sight and the dude's been working. I can't remember what chapter it is, three, four, whatever. Uh, I don't know. Jack, hit me up. Let me know. Come on the podcast. But uh, so I'm like, but it, it was that story you're telling that that pivot from from then where. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the value is in the challenge of, of taking this, this wizened old animal. Yeah. And that, uh, that part in Jack's book happens to occur in a place called Niassa in Northern Mozambique. And I spent 10 days in the same camp that Jack spent. I wasn't out there at the same time, but I, I was in the camp with the same outfit and crew and, uh, his pH that was leading him on those stalks, a guy's name called Ryan Cliff. And his name's not Ryan Cliff in the book, but it is Ryan Cliff that is his PH. Um, phenomenal piece of, of, of just wild Africa. Like that's, it's where things do what they're supposed to do without human influence. It's where lions are proper lions. Like they have eaten people, they've eaten whatever they want to eat because they're freaking lions. Yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah, uh, the Burn and Crocker Club just had a, a phenomenal, again, foresight to say, how do we, how do we rectify our wildlife populations? Let's protect the engine, which is the female reproductive component of things. And let's encourage a value chain within our hunting community that older is better. And so it happens that older meant bigger. And that drove competition, which meant it drove value. Again, I'd, I'd love your professional expertise on this, but my understanding is, in, and I would imagine the time frame in which this was happening, that this would have maybe been a happy accident, but isn't culling those older animals actually beneficial to the, the health of the population or of the herd as well? Are, are there some, some genetic benefits there or... Anything no, like that? so the and the anti-hunting establishment will use that as an actually a negative against us, right? Especially when I, in Africa, when it comes to elephants and lions, their argument would be for us to take an, a lion that is over eight years old or an elephant that's over forty-five years old. Oh, they're in their breeding prime. Oh, they're the you know that's the that's they're not you're taking animals out of the population. Hunters are taking animals out of the population, and thus reducing those genes to be perpetuated in the population. So two points. First point's a very broad point. Uh, IUCN, the International Union of Conservation of Natural Resources, out of uh, France. It's the probably the biggest, most well-known if not the uh, professional organization for wildlife conservation in the world, independent, scientific. There's not a single species that is currently threatened as a result of trophy hunting in Africa. End of story. Okay? The number one threat to animals in Africa is habitat loss. What do you think is the, the activity that protects the most habitat in Africa right now? Hunting. Okay. Number two, lions are breeding from three years old. So that lion has been breeding since three through eight. 
So for five years, it's been putting its genes into the population. Elephants have been breeding since 30. And yes, their, their, reproductive, um, their reproductive biology indicates that they are increased in their must the older they get. And must is essentially uh, a female reproductive cycle, but expressed in males, okay. in elephants. So they just have a heightened hormones and testosterone and they just, you know. It doesn't mean they have uh, more ability to pass their genes on. It just means that they're in that cycle longer. Regardless, your genes are being, are being pushed into the population. More often than not, to your question, animals that are very, very old have already been removed out of the mating circle. They've been ousted by younger, fitter, stronger males. They're just living out their days. They're just typically by themselves. They may be in a bachelor group. And if they can get lucky every so often, they'll slip in and try and get lucky. <laughs> but, you know, they don't have any impact to the genetics of a population. They've already spread their genes when they were the dominant male of that dom- of that 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 herd, that area, that catchment, that valley, and they get to a point where, like, they get ousted by someone stronger. Well, and, you know, tying a, f- a few of these uh, topics together um, is, you know, you, you said none of the endangered species are endangered because of trophy hunting. Um, but what, is my understanding accurate that... I was going to say some of the species and make it broad, but really to me, the only thing I'm aware of would be like rhinos. And I think they're on a lot of people's, if you're worried about endangered species that rhinos are probably on your radar and is, is there, in my understanding is that the majority of the, the, the protection for the rhino population and the anti-poaching activities are funded by these hunting operations and the revenue that generates. Is that, is that accurate or, or how does that play out? accurate. The largest white rhino and black rhino populations on this planet today exist on places that have hunting. Now, are those rhinos being hunted? In most cases, no. Some places, yes. But, again, you've got to think about everything that is hunted, from a rhino and a lion and an elephant to your, you know, you know, your common impala or your common white-tailed deer. They are economic assets. And if you value or you understand the money, you know, money value chain, you want your economic assets to grow. So why would you wipe them out? Makes no sense. Would it, uh, what's the best way to phrase this question? Would, uh, would rhinos be extinct right now if it weren't for hunting? 100%. Kruger National Park, the flagship national park of South Africa. No hunting, ecotourism destination. No causation associated with what I'm about to say tied to ecotourism. Love Kruger. I think it's a phenomenal destination. Kruger Park has lost 75% of its rhinos in the last year. 259 rhinos have died in 2022, and we're sitting August the 17th. Majority of those rhinos have been killed in national parks. What? And it's keratin. 
It's keratin. It's your fingers. It's what your hair is made of. And that's they they they, tar- they take the horns, and that's really the the only interest. It's all poaching. Heck and- yeah, yeah. They just come in syndicates, thermals, helicopters. Just interested because the stuff is like, I don't know that. I don't know the details here, in terms of how much it is per ounce. But I think it's one of the most expensive things per ounce in the world right now. Gosh. Yeah, and you say like, you know, and then you've got this guy who has 20, you know, 2,500 rhinos on his property. It's costing him 50,000 US dollars a month to keep up with the feeding and the protection 24-7, right? And people say, no, you're not allowed to hunt one to generate $250,000 because you have an American client who's willing to pay a quarter of a million dollars to hunt one rhino. And you're against hunting that one rhino because it just doesn't feel right. Yet the hunting of that one rhino would save 2,500 rhino in the long run. And that's the difference at the end of the day. That's the difference at the end of the day when it comes to people who are anti-hunting and people that that are for hunting. Is that anti-hunters believe they focus on the individual. They focus on that 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 one rhino's life is the most valuable thing in the world. We wouldn't argue with that, but we believe the population is more valuable than the life of the individual. Because I need the population to be sustained and to increase so that my kids and my grandkids can see it one day. The only way that you can sustain a population is to think at the population level, not think at the individual level. So, so that you know, I was I was going to you know we talked some about what what the the mission is behind Blood Origins, but if I were to say you know what's what's the what's the goal, what's the hope, where do you see it? Is it getting that information out, that story out? It's changing perceptions around who hunters are and changing perceptions of what hunting does for people, for their livelihoods, for their communities that they live in, and for the wildlife that it conserves all around the world. Because you can look everywhere in the world. You can go from Zimbabwe to Mozambique to France to Poland to Pakistan. And the same message resonates about why is a wildlife population proliferating? It's because someone has decided that there's a value to that population and it's tied to hunting. Is there, is there a hope that your content um, drives curiosity or, or interest in hunting at the individual level? Um, or you're indifferent to that as long as people gain the understanding that those who choose to hunt um, are not only not not evil, but es- essential, really, to conf- conservation at the very least. I'm indifferent to people becoming hunters because of our content. And here's the reason why. It, it, our content was not built to create hunters. 
nor do we need an additional 50 million hunters. The resource couldn't handle it. Yeah. What we need is an additional 30 million people that when someone starts talking about the idea of we need to ban hunting, they've seen our content and go, hmm, that doesn't sound right because we know this, 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 and this. Again, uh, we don't build content. I don't build content for hunters. Yes, hunters consume it. Hunters may take something away from it. But really, at the end of the day, I'm building content for people like you. People that are listening to this podcast that may not ever hunt, that never considered hunting. And they may even have a negative perception about hunting because of what they've seen in the media space or some viral social media video. And hopefully they see our content and they see how we approach it, that it's very intellectual, that it's fact-based, that it's science-based, that it has some emotion tied to it when you're talking about an individual and why they hunt. And it's authentic. And they can believe it. And they can, you know, I, I truly believe that our, uh, our internet community, our digital community nowadays is getting better and better and better at smelling bullshit when they see bullshit. Excuse my language. And so us being authentic, as we've been on this podcast, <laughs> is, is the only way forward. And people can tell that it's real and they can tell that it's authentic and they tell it's full of integrity. And I think that matters. With with all of this, you know, it's this isn't uh, an emotional thing. This isn't a political belief. This isn't like your the information you're sharing, the the messages you're trying to get out is is backed by the data. Is back, this is such a loaded term, but it's backed by by the science. Science not funded by Pfizer. It's like you you know your stuff again. It's not. You're not, and not that I, hey, I'm friends with Jim Bob, Jim Bob in the F-150 Dooley. I, I am. I got no problem. But that's not you. Like, you can take off your camo and step into a lecture hall and deliver an, an intellectual and, and scientifically sound lecture on these issues. Where, where is the scientific community on, on this issue? Why, why aren't they backing this? Why aren't they pushing this? Or are they and they're just getting nowhere with it? And again, that's that's why Blood Origins exists. Yeah, the, the scientific community has shown that hunting is very good for wildlife conservation anywhere, everywhere in the world. But as you know, in today's journalistic age, science is ignored for people's opinions. And people's opinions sometimes are stronger than science. Um, but we've got some great science coming out. We've got actually a um, one of the champions for hunting really right now is a female scientist out of the UK who happens to be a vegetarian who hates hunting. And she's a huge belief. She's a believer in trophy hunting because of its of its of the evidence-based conservation model that it produces. And she's like, it 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 works. Yes, I don't like the fact that they are killing animals. But the evidence of the amount of habitat being protected, the amount of wildlife being sustained, is undeniable. So Unless there's an alternative that does the very same thing that doesn't require killing of animals, 
why would you get rid of trophy hunts? Yeah. And I think a lot of hunters would, you know, I, I like to hunt. I like the adventure. Uh, I do it because it's different from hiking. I feel like I'm a participant in nature. I'm not an observer in nature. But if someone came to me and said, Robbie, we've got a solution that's going to save wildlife, going to provide all these benefits to the community that, that hunting is doing, but you don't have to kill any animals anymore. I'm going to be like, okay, sounds great. But in my brain, at the end of the day, from a biological perspective, I'm going to, but you're still going to have to do something. Yeah. Unless you're just happy to see Mother Nature boom and bust, degrade habitat, let habitat come back, which are, are, are pretty big cycles. But again, that's Mother Nature, and she's, she's violent, she's cruel, she has no ethics. And if that's okay, if that yeah. if you're okay with that, then I'm okay with that. Well, and if, you know, my comments earlier about uh, you know remove humans from the equation and all the animals will die of old age was uh, some people don't pick up on my sarcasm over the audio of the podcast, but that was incredibly tongue in cheek, and one need look no farther than the social media accounts of Nature Is Metal to understand mm -hmm. that possibly the most humane death most animals will ever experience is at the hands of a, of a responsible hunter. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. When, uh, when an apex predator is uh, devouring you anus first while you're still breathing and your heart's still pumping, I can't imagine, uh, I've never Tough experienced it. I can't imagine that's a peaceful out. <laughs> Definitely a tough way to go. But, I mean, uh, you know, backtracking though to the scientist from UK, what an incredible mouthpiece to, you know, she's amazing. how impactful she's amazing. to say, hey, this isn't my thing and I'm, I'm not crazy about it, but it, it's, it's kind of like, you know, I, I hit on, um, my podcast is all over the place. Uh, I think it's a pro. Some people think it's a con, whatever. People say, <laughs> uh, you know, find your niche. My niche is talking to people. Okay. Um, but so what we cover a fair amount of eh, some politics, it's not a political podcast, but I like history. I like, I like the theory. I like the philosophy, right? And there's, I think it's a Churchill quote uh, about capitalism. It's either capitalism or democracy. I can't remember what, but the quote is, and it's applicable, is it's the worst possible system except for all the others. And it's that argument of wow. I'm open to a better solution as soon as someone gives it to me. As soon as someone shows it to me. But until then, this is the best we've got. So let's support it. Agreed. Agreed. No, it's you, you nailed it. Like people talk about carbon credits. People talk about biodiversity credits. People talk about the you know, International Monetary Fund, the IMF, IMF coming on board and pumping billions of dollars into wildlife conservation. Okay, great. Where is it? Yeah. It's not coming anytime soon. Come on, people. So on some of the, we've talked a lot of macro. I do want to, um, because I, you know, who knows when the, the next guest is knowledgeable about hunting as you will come along. So while <laughs> I understand your, your goal, uh, you know, or, or at least the goal for blood origins isn't to create 
more hunters and far be it from me to want to, to crowd the hunting grounds for you. But, uh, you know, when I, when I, you know, started the conversation with, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who I have hunted. I'm not someone who would call myself a, a hunter. Um, and you place me in the middle ground. I'm, I don't know what the spectrum is. I guess it's from like, I, I'm avid and I love hunting to, I hate hunting. I'm deaf. If I'm in the middle, it's way towards the, I love hunting. My experience with it, though, is as someone where, again, hunting tends to be, and, and again, please, please correct any of my misperceptions here, um, very regional in, in the U.S., uh, where, you know, my, my family, well, I say regional. It, it's regional in the sense of, you know, depending on almost all states are either, some of them are very, very real, but either you're in an urban population center and you tend to be disconnected from your food sources, whatever those are, uh, because food comes from the supermarket. Or if you're more rural, it's, it's much more likely that, you know, something like hunting farming is going to be in your background. So, uh, you know, grew up, my, my dad wasn't a hunter. His dad wasn't a hunter. His dad owned a couple of firearms that I ultimately ended up inheriting. One is this gorgeous, blued, 30-inch barrel double barrel 12 gauge shotgun that I adore. It's a safe queen. It's been fired, but not much. It's beautiful. And then a, a little 22 plinker, but he never used them for, for anything. Mm-hmm. I don't even know why he owned them. I don't think my dad knew why he owned them. So, you know, I, I get into my older age and I, you know, I gain an interest in, in firearms kind of as a, as a gateway myself, but as I, uh, you know, start to consume more uh, podcasts and kind of broaden my own understandings. I'm like, no, I, I think having some connection to the food on my plate would, would be a good thing. And so, you know, I don't know what most people's approach is. I start to watch some TV shows and there's some entertainment value again, particularly, you know, uncle Ted, I know he's not everybody's bag, but the guy's hilarious. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so, but I felt like there was only so much I could learn. You can only get so much from YouTube videos. So at least for me, maybe this isn't the natural path for everybody. I'm like, okay, well, who do I know that hunts? So like one friend in particular, I knew he hunted regularly. And again, I'm, you know, I'm down here in Florida and it's, it's an interesting hunting landscape down here. Uh, and I'm like, Hey, and I, I saw him post on social media. He's like, Oh, I'm going to, uh, you know, put out cameras and prepare, you know, whatever. I don't know if he was planting something for feed or what he was doing. I'm like, Hey, can I come with? I'd kind of like to, to learn the ropes. He's like, yeah, let me know. Yeah, actually, I can't remember if he was part of a club or if it was just hunting lots. He's like, you know, we have spaces available or whatever it is. I'm like, well, I it's something I'd be interested in. And uh, he's like, yeah, it's only it's only three thousand dollars a year. And in my head, I thought, oh, you don't realize that we're playing uh, in totally different ball leagues uh, <laughs> with our what at this point is uh, our hobby budgets. Also. Uh, like most men, if I add one more expensive hobby to my list, it becomes a your a, wife a, may a, kill you, dude. Nothing that I like to do is cheap. I, I can't have fun for free anymore. And so I'm thinking the amount of meat that I would need to put in the freezer to justify that expense. And so it it just seems like not growing up in in it and then trying to get into it at least in the the setting that that Florida is it it just has always seemed like such a high barrier to entry where the exception was like the hunt that I did go on with friends was on some managed private property it was very hog specific you went out they placed us in some stands they kind of knew there were going to be hogs around it wasn't quite fish in a barrel but man it wasn't far from that as a matter of fact the first hog i took 
uh, was running from a group that was stalking and stopped right under my stand. I, I couldn't even use my sights. I had to make sure my toes were out of the way to, <laughs> to take this hog. Um, you know, so I don't know if you would call that sporting or not. It was humane. I mean that it, it dropped, it was, it was dead right there. Um, you know, but I'm like, but this, uh, I, I enjoy like bringing that meat home. We had the hogs processed. I had some chops. I had some tenderloin. I had some sausage made, had to learn the hard way that it definitely needed to be marinated and or cooked with some onions. It's not like going and buying pork chops or bacon from the grocery store, but I, you know, I got that, that little taste, no pun intended of that connection to this dinner that we're, we're having, like I brought, I brought home the bacon almost, sure, almost sure. literally. But at the same time, it wasn't that experience of, I'm like, well, this, this version of hunting, this isn't particularly appealing to me. So it's how does somebody who maybe has that interest, how do you bridge that gap from, uh, like you did where, you know, I'm not learning this from dad. I'm not learning this from grandpa. Mm-hmm, it's not mm-hmm. cultural for me. I want to learn. I want to do it right. I want to be safe. I want to be be lawful about it. Um, what what's what's what are the steps there? No, I think that uh, there are a lot of, especially post pandemic. There's a lot of late adult onset hunters like I was that are interested in getting into the hunting game, and really there isn't there isn't a set sort of like this is what you do step one step two step two step four. But rather, I think what you need to do is there's a number of, of hunting organizations, National Deer Association, NW, National Wild Turkey Federation. Um, there may be even some local to your state that you're listening to this podcast in that offer opportunities for mentoring, um, offer opportunities as intro hunting classes. And that's where I would start. I would I would. You need a mentor, you need a friend, you need someone to take you. Um, and there's more resources available today for the new hunter than there ever was. And I think everyone knows how to Google. Everyone knows how to Google right search terms. And those search terms will lead you to the place that you need to be. And that's where you need to start. Am I just hanging out with friends that have too much money to burn? Is are there is there a more economical approach to to begin to hunt? Well, the barrier of entry in terms of hunting obviously is expensive, right? You've got tags, you've got guns, you've got ammunition, you've got all the other paraphernalia that come with it. And you don't have to have all the paraphernalia, but you certainly need a weapon, you certainly need good optics, and you certainly need good ammunition. Now, next step after that is, yeah, it could be very, very cheap. Buy your hunting license and go hunt on publicly available ground. And that's the beautiful, the beautiful thing about the American model is that that land belongs to you, it belongs to me, and you can do with it what you want within the, the envelope of the, the legal system that is bounded to that resource. Now, are you going to be successful? That's debatable. And so will you be successful day one? Will you be successful day two? Or will you not be successful at all that season on public ground because you're just trying to figure it out? Yeah, it may be that you you didn't expend much money, but you got frustrated. Yeah. Because you didn't you didn't achieve the thing that you wanted to achieve. Now, 
could you find a buddy who has a private property that he has access to that he's not going to force you to pay three grand for a lease? Absolutely. 100%. I, I would get rid of that buddy tomorrow. <laughs> Um, I, I think, in fairness to him, because I, I think he probably will hear, hear this episode in particular, I think will interest him. He wasn't unwilling to take me hunting on his lease. He was trying to do me the favor of saying, hey, if you really want to get into this, there's there's leases, no, there's would, leases I would available where anything. I go. But. I would tell your buddy, I want to go with you. And typically these lease places, you're not going to you're not going to be killing a monster buck, which is what they're paying the money for. Essentially, yeah. you're there to kill a doe. You're there to kill a pig. And they want them gone anyway. Yeah. So you're doing them a favor. Can we, I, again, I, I, I like these little, uh, uh, you know, micro versus macro topics just because it's so fun having an expert on these things on. Um, so, I, you know, bringing up pigs, and I, I talked about hogs some earlier. Um, I, I think some people are very appalled, again, when we go back to um, what the public perception is of hunting. And I think occasionally you catch wind of things like these these massive hog callings in uh, like in Texas in particular. It always seems like it's either uh, Matt Best or Tim Kennedy in a helicopter that's out mowing down hogs that that makes the news. Um, can you talk some to what what the issue is with with feral hogs and what makes that necessary? Oh, absolutely. Probably the most invasive feral species in the United States. In terms of land mass and where they are occurring on the landscape, um, I think the problem with feral hogs is also that they offer very good sport from a hunting perspective, and people transport live hogs everywhere and release them, which is not good. Uh, they're here to stay. There's no way that we are eradicating feral hogs, regardless of how many pigs are killed from a helicopter by Tim Kennedy or Matt Best. <laughs> They're going to stay on the landscape. And so there is a management culling component to feral hogs. Absolutely. There's also quite a good hunting component to feral hogs. And so in Texas specifically, you're dealing with hogs that are, are pretty much corn-fed animals. They go to corn feeders. They pretty much eat the corn out of the corn feeders. They're not your, your swamp hogs like Florida has or Mississippi has. And when I tell you that's the best pork you've ever eaten, it is the best pork you've ever eaten. Pork chops of those corn-fed hogs in Texas, like my kids, they, they, my oldest one says he makes pork rib graveyards in front of his plate because they <laughs> cannot eat enough of them. Um, so, yeah, pork, uh, pigs, feral invasive species in the United States and also in Australia, very much in, in any part of the world, that feral pig, which is a, essentially a domesticated pig crossed with a, a, a sort of a line of Russian boar, becomes invasive very quickly because within the first year of their life, a female pig could have up to three to four litters of six to 12 piglets. And so you can imagine how one male, one female could quickly proliferate into hundreds of pigs in a very short period of time. Gosh. Can we can we get ahead of it? No. It's done. It's done. You can only you can only manage them to a certain point. You're never going to eradicate pigs. You can only manage them to a certain point at this stage of the game. So we might as well enjoy them. 
you might as well do something that enjoys like the you know the big the, tr- the the pig traps are getting more and more sophisticated you've got now real time cameras watching those traps they can be remotely set so you can catch a sounder of 30 pigs now you know not let any escape but you know this is a self-serving floridian question but this is literally dead center in the middle of your professional expertise are we going to get rid of these freaking pythons down here or is that over no. too? Over too. They have, if you're, Dude, if, you don't even have an eye, you, you, you may, but I highly doubt that you do. The amount of invasive species in the Everglades right now will blow your mind. Oh, I, I, I have no doubt. Pythons obviously are, 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 are destroying biodiversity in the Everglades. You know, your Burmese pythons, reticulated pythons, they're all getting to 12, 13, 14-foot size, decimating everything. Oh, the small game doesn't no, exist. Do, and I say small game, now they're cutting them open and pulling deer, whole deer out of them. Mm-hmm. Again, mm-hmm. our deer, not the biggest down here, but it's still mm-hmm. impressive. Mm-hmm. You've got monkeys. You've got monkeys running up and down the rivers in Florida. Hey, Florida's a special place. I don't know. It's a special place. <laughs> That's for sure. You've got iguanas freaking everywhere. The, but, um, it's, I haven't hunted them yet. I think I want to. If you live outside of Florida, you, you wouldn't have experienced this. But yeah, now not so much here in Central Florida. I haven't really seen them yet, but I've seen them in South Florida. And at least once a year, you'll hear on the news when we get what we in Florida call a cold snap. It wouldn't register as a cold snap elsewhere, but here it registers a cold snap. And these freaking iguanas, which are not small, they're not light, they fall out of the trees. They'll <laughs> land on people, they land on animals. Uh, you know, they're they're cold blooded, so they just kinda they just kind of freeze up, not quite fall asleep. Yeah. And uh, they'll just they'll just drop out of so just raining iguanas in South Florida, which just seems par for the course for <laughs> for Florida. So, uh, what's um, what's next for for Blood Origins? I mean, what's what's on the? You're headed to Spain. Just more, just more truth telling, yeah. man. That's all it is. We're going to Spain. We got a great series of uh, films coming out on conservation projects, Pittman Robertson projects from Arkansas to Maine to New Hampshire. Um, yeah, that's about you know we're just trying to improve our content, trying to improve the messaging of our content. How do we ta- how do we channel content that is more non-hunter specific? So I'm really interesting and interested in showing the dots that are connected to the action. So yes, there's this action that is this hunt, that is this kill. But who are the people that are connected beyond that action? Did you know that you've you know you've got this ranch manager who's a wildlife biologist that's job is dependent on that action? Did you know there's a taxidermist that is dependent on that action? Did you know that there's a game processor that's employing 16 people that is dependent on that action? Did you know that that meat from the game processors goes to a sort of hunters for the hungry program that gets disseminated to a veterans community, that gets disseminated to a battered woman's shelter, that gets disseminated to a low-income school community? And they all benefit they're all living. They're all gracious because of that one action that happened way back here. 
That's what I want to tell. Those are the stories that matter. Well, you you hit early on. I, I put it I put it in my notes here, right? That hunters are storytellers. That that that's the the you know a part of the the history. It's in the it's in the DNA, and that's when you when you look at our our entertainment. That's that's what it is, right? What's what's the compelling story? Take TV, movie, literature, and so these are these are human stories. And man, I tell you, even just it was all I could do to hold back and really dive into your content. Like I said, I really like to come into these situations kind of in the same scenario that that my listeners are going to be in. Uh, but even in in the short form, just it was hard not to dive in, not to go deeper, seeing these human stories, seeing the impact. And it's just to to watch it, to see the quality of it, the 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 humanity of it, the storytelling side of it. It's just hard not to feel like, man, this has got to be, this is, I should be watching this on Discovery. I should be watching this on Nat Geo. I should be watching this on Amazon Thank Prime you. or Netflix. Uh, is any of that in, in the works? Is, are, is that a, a goal? Do you want to retain sure. more control Definitely. than that would give you? I'm just like, I just, I feel, I 100% can see an hour long Blood Origins documentary narrated by Mike Rowe. We'll negotiate it here on the Solid Seven podcast. Mike comes on, you come on, we work it all out here on the Solid Seven podcast. So I'm just like, this is, this is as good, as compelling as, as any, uh, you know, quote unquote reality content out there. And I'm like, let's, the production value is already there. It's not even like somebody has to dump money into it. It's like, just, just pay you for the rights and let's press play. Mm-hmm. No, that's, you know, definitely. The more people we can touch, the better, right? The more people we can touch with the truth, the better. So, yeah, hopefully one day we're on those big platforms. Uh, that's certainly what we're striving for. Now, I, I don't know if you're this this way with, uh, and, and it's it's crazy to me that Blood or seeing your content, that Blood Origins isn't what you're doing full time. <laughs> That there's other jobs that you're pulling off, and and parenting, and and uh, and all those things it boggles my mind, and uh, makes me ashamed that uh, I can't find more time to promote my podcast on social media each week. So I'll pray through on that. Um, but I, I, in the podcast, I make these connections, right? I'm like, man, if that person comes on or this person hears it, maybe it connects to that person, and that's part of the fun of it for me. And I feel like I've mapped out for you free of charge, uh, the, this pathway to, I'm ready. to some of those major productions. All right, um, tell me. We talked about him a little, a little bit earlier with the African hunting tie, Jack Carr. We, I've talked about Jack a fair amount here lately. Hey, I'm, I'm just a fan. Um, you know that he's a big fan of Blood Origin? It, uh, it, did, uh, it did cross my radar. Uh, I, I, he follows I, us, and he's been on our podcast. Well, and that's – I did – I avoided a lot of content, but – I saw Jack and I'm like, well, I'm listening. Well, I'm listening. Uh, and phenomenal episode listeners for, for sure. Uh, check out the blood origins podcast, but, but check out that episode. Obviously Jack's everywhere right now with the terminal list. Big, right. Biggest show on Amazon prime. Right. Like I can't billions of minutes of downloads. I can't even keep track. His, yep. the star of the show is one of the biggest movie stars on the planet right now. And as a hunter and as a hunter, and a farmer, all this juice. And listeners, spoiler alert here, if you haven't read the, the James Reese series, if you haven't read Jack's books, but if there is a season two, 
for the terminal list. I don't know if, if they would follow the novel titles, but if there's a season two, it opens up in South Africa at one of, well, not South Africa. Mozambique. He's in Mozambique in Africa at one of these hunting camps, like we've discussed. And it just seems to me that they're going to need a subject matter expert con- pretty cool. consulting on set for the second season of the terminal. And if that's not you, who else would it be? And next thing you know, you're talking to Amazon people. You're hanging out with Chris Pratt. I, Bob, I, Bob, I connected the dots. That's I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I, next time I text Jack Carr, uh, I'm going to I'm going to text him to say, "Hey, if you need a subject matter expert for hunting in Mozambique for season two, I'm available." I I think I think it works. I think it fits. Perfect. I think, Perfect. especially the American audience, we have no idea what accents belong where. You could. I mean, you could be a guide. You could own the camp. You could be on the show. I mean, I'm just throwing these things. I'm just putting this stuff out there into the universe. Oh, but uh, now, I, you know, some of this is tongue in cheek, but I, I just, I'd love to see. I love what you're about. I love what you're doing Thank with Blood you, Origins. Man. And I just, um, you know, the the quality of what you're doing, the, the, the message is solid. The information is solid and the production values there. And I mean, I would just love... Uh, to, both for for you and and for the message itself, I, I would just love to see it, uh, you know, gain a, a big mainstream audience like that. And I think it's I think it's worthy of that. So I, I hope that uh, that all comes your way. Thanks, my man. What 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 did I miss? What's what what's shit? It was a great podcast. <laughs> I don't typically do sort of lengthy podcasts, but this has been awesome. This has been outstanding. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on. We'll we'll have to have you back sometime. Normally, my, the the mo I've got a I've got a pool of of great guests that are, um, you know, some are, are kind of subject matter experts that I've met. A lot are friends that I've just gathered and known over life. So they'll kind of circulate through, and then we have a, a guest like you come through. But our our normal mo when I'm not doing more interview style is uh, we just kind of start talking about news of the day. It could be. It could be rocket launches. We love to talk about mm-hmm. I'm in Central Florida. We love a nice rocket launch. That is the question that I missed. You're South African. I would be Absolutely. I would be remiss. My my no, li- my listeners no, would not, not forgive not me. There. We're not going there. I mean, it's it's like asking somebody who went to a big college. You don't even know when they graduated, and you're like, oh, do you know this person? They graduated do there. You, but do my, you know Elon Musk? My listeners won't forgive me if I don't ask. I'll say this, the odds are low that you know Elon. I understand that, but the odds are better that you know Elon than anyone else I've previously had on the podcast. That's all I'm saying. Yep, I do not know Elon. I'm sorry <laughs> I to, to drop that. However, uh, I did another talking head in which I called out another celebrity by the name of Trevor Noah who's a South African comedian who happens to run The Daily Show, uh-huh. right? And uh, he was raised in a suburb just down the street from me in Johannesburg, and we are of the same age, probably ran in the same circles. We never crossed paths, um, but we very much were in the same sort of suburb circles in South Africa. So that's about as close to a famous South African as I get. Sorry. Hey, well, we'll, we'll take it. 
And I'll add that Trevor Noah probably needed to be called out. So, <laughs> but, uh, but no, man, I, I'd love to have you back on any time. I'd love For to, sure. I'd love to have you talk about, uh, you know, if you, any big projects that are coming up, it's, it's open invitation to come on here and promote and love to, to just get your, get your take on various things. 100% if any of these, uh, big, you know, this rich person went hunting and they're evil, uh, we'll, we'll definitely, you know, get your take and break those things down. But even, uh, growing up in South Africa, I feel like is a, is a podcast in and of itself. I remember at one time, um, the, uh, the church that I was going to working with, we were, we were putting together a missions trip, uh, to South Africa, Africa, to Johannesburg. And it, it got put on hold. It was sketchy because at the time, and I can't remember who's, who knows who said these things. It's like a, a restaurant having the world's best coffee. But at the time, uh, they were seriously considering backing out because Johannesburg was being touted as the most dangerous city in the world. Flamethrower. There's no doubt that that is true. And, and and that's that would have been like smack dab like your youth growing up there that that time frame, oh, yeah. and yeah. so just absolutely like the stories we were getting was were of like there's people installing flamethrowers under their vehicles so they don't get carjacked at stop signs and stoplights. I'm like, okay, well that sounds like it might be the most dangerous. It's got a very Mad Max vibe to it. So you know, and the the flip side is you know my wife having spent a significant amount of time in South Africa is like. No, it's there. And, and in uh, Joburg in particular, she's like, yeah, it's, I mean, depending on where you're at and, and the townships and stuff, but she's like, yeah, when you're in the city, it's, you might as well be in Europe. <laughs> so, uh, but would, would love to, to hear some of those stories and get your take. One but, day, uh, for sure. Open One door day. here for you anytime. 100% right, appreciate you coming on. Uh, blood origins everywhere. The social media's blood origins, the YouTube's blood origins. We'll, we'll link Google that. blood origins. Simple. Perfect. Well, we'll, uh, we'll link all that in the show notes as well for the listeners who, let's be honest, are too lazy for Google. We'll provide, I will be your Google. We'll provide that for you. But, uh, listeners, we, uh, we appreciate you too. And, uh, always appreciate you tuning in. Visit the website, solid seven podcast.com solid. The number seven podcast.com. There's always links to the latest episodes on their uh, upcoming events, uh, good causes to support. And man, we didn't even hit on any of that because um, you get you're not just getting out a message, but you are active in conservation. So so check out the Blood Origins website and support some of those. Uh, very worthy causes too. But when you're done supporting Blood Origins, come back to solidsimpodcast.com. There's a fun new link on there to buy me a Jocko Go, which I think is a cool way to support the podcast. Or if you just want to go next level, you can become a Patreon supporter. And of course, as always, follows, subscriptions, ratings, thumbs up, five stars, always appreciated. It helps tell the algorithms to tell people about us. Robbie, thank you so much, man. This, this was a blast. I, I look forward to doing it again, man. Thank you, my man. All right. Thanks, brother. We're out. The Solid 7 Podcast is a proud affiliate of GORUCK. GORUCK designs and builds the toughest gear on the planet, tested and proven at thousands of GORUCK events held all over the world and led by current and former Special Forces combat veterans. The GORUCK brand stands for Building Better Americans, the Special Forces way of life, and a life-or-death approach to building the world's toughest gear. Visit Solid7Podcast.com and click on the GORUCK link to learn more about their gear and events and a portion of every purchase and every event registration you make will go to support us here at the Solid 7 Podcast. Mm-hmm.